Hi guys, welcome back to Revive Struggle Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and today I have Greg Potter back on the show because we had some unfinished business. We had some questions that we'd gone back and forth about that I thought would be worth exploring and sharing Greg's perspective and answers with you guys. One of which was cardio uh, for the physique competitor or athlete and whether or not we should be doing it, how much we should be doing it, is it different for whether or not we're dieting or gaining and that sort of thing. Really interesting discussion. We then dig into donating blood, the health benefits that might be associated with that, taking breaks from social media and also psychedelics. So a really interesting episode as always, guys. And if you did enjoy this, please do make sure to subscribe, like, share, all that good stuff. Give us a nice review over on your podcast platform. That's always appreciated. And without further ado, let's get into the chat. Hi guys, welcome back to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall. And today I have Greg Potter back on the show because we had some unfinished business from last time because there was a few more questions that we'd been chatting back and forth about that I thought uh, Greg's take on them would be really interesting. And uh, so I guess we should just kick things off immediately because it hasn't been that long since uh, we last spoke anyway, so there's not too much to catch up on. And uh, the first question was one uh, regarding cardio because this is something that comes up uh, semi-regularly within the kind of bodybuilding community in that a lot of people obviously just view cardio as just a, a, a tool for fat loss. And I think it's become well known, at least very much in the evidence-based space that we kind of reside in, that it isn't necessary for fat loss. It can just be an additive. It can be a tool at our disposal to aid in a bigger calorie deficit or aid the calorie deficit that we're trying to achieve. But now and then it crops up for bodybuilders in terms of can cardio be complementary to their weight training? Can it lead to better recovery um, outside of sessions, within sessions? Um, is there some pros there that, and a reason we should be doing cardio, maybe even an off-season where in terms of energy balance, that's not complementing things uh, generally. It's kind of pushing us in the wrong direction that most of us want to go. So I'm very interested in your take on this, Greg, uh, in terms of kind of what might be the pros and cons for bodybuilders and cardio outside of like, well, I guess you can even touch on the the kind of energy balance side if, if that's something you wanted to touch on as well. But I'm very interested in, yeah, maybe doing it to complement training and that sort of thing. I think the strongest rationale for including it is to support general health. Obviously, there are lots of beneficial adaptations to endurance exercise, everything from reduced blood pressure to improved blood sugar control. And interestingly, there are some data from very large scale studies showing that people who have both high strength fitness, so who are physically strong, and high cardiorespiratory fitness live longest longer than people who only have one of those two characteristics. Some people think that it could positively affect adaptations to resistance training. Just as one example of this, there is a study that's received a lot of airtime recently by Gianni Parisi from McMaster University, which is where Stu Phillips is in Canada. And what they did was they took some young men and they had them do six weeks of single-legged cycling. So they cycled for 45 minutes, three times a week. And then after that, they did 10 weeks of resistance training with both legs. So they're trying to work out whether the moderate intensity endurance exercise that preceded the strength training improved the adaptations to the strength training. 
And some of the things they found were as expected. So for example, that single leg cycling improved capillarization in the muscles that were trained. So there are more blood vessels delivering nutrients to those muscles. And interestingly, they looked at the legs independently because obviously one of the legs did the cycling first and then the strength training, but the other just did the strength training. And they found that the combination of cycling and the resistance training increased the size of all of the different muscle fiber types they looked at. So you've got type one fibers that are slower twitch, more fatigue resistant, but less able to produce high power. And you've got type two fibers, which are the ones that most strength and power athletes and bodybuilders are most interested in because they've got the greatest potential for growth and they also produce the highest amount of power. And they found that the combination increased the size of all of those different types of fibers, whereas the resistance training alone only increased the size of the type two fibers. And interestingly, they also looked at the number of capillaries that those different types of fibers had before resistance training. And they found that the fibers that were more capillarized, so that had better blood flow, grew more in response to the training. And so based on this, the hypothesis is that doing endurance training before strength training could support hypertrophy in part through that higher muscle capillarization at baseline. And people obviously are, are very interested in whether doing both the endurance training and the strength training at the same time could positively or negatively affect adaptations. And I think that's arguably a more important question. So if we consider the study that I just mentioned, what the data suggests is that doing some endurance training first could support hypertrophy, but the data don't show that doing both of them at the same time lead to greater hypertrophy. And so the implication in my mind is that if you're in a period of downtime from the gym, you might want to continue to do some low to moderate intensity exercise, which is going to be good for your general health. It shouldn't be so strenuous that it leads to muscle loss, however. And I also think that if indeed muscle capillarization is the important factor, then there are other ways that you can get that. You can get that by doing low load resistance training with or without blood flow restriction. And I'll add that capillarization is normally a local phenomenon. It's specific to the muscle fibers that have been trained. And so if we think about that study, it focused on the legs. And if we assume what I said is true, then if they'd also done upper body resistant training, for example, then you wouldn't expect the preceding leg endurance training to have affected the upper body resistance training. And so an advantage of doing that low load resistance training would probably be that you could have that improved capillarization throughout your body. So not just in, in this instance, your legs. If we think about concurrent training, so doing both endurance training and resistance training at the same time, then if you look at all of the data that have been done, and there've been various meta-analyses on the subject, they tend to show that doing cardio at the same time as strength training minimally affects muscle growth it certainly doesn't improve it in some instances it probably slightly impairs muscle growth and 
the effect that seems to be most consistent is that it reduces power adaptations. And that might relate to things like muscle fiber composition. And interestingly, there are some data showing that running seems to lead to that type of impairment more than something like cycling that is lower impact. And it might also have some fiber specific effects. So maybe for instance, running selectively reduces type one fiber hypertrophy in the muscles that have been targeted through the running. But I think the usefulness of endurance training depends on the context. And so just thinking about this practically, let's say that you've got a family history of cardiovascular disease. I think if that's the case, there's probably a stronger rationale to include it than if you didn't have that family history. Whether it's likely to be beneficial is going to depend on your morphometry, which some people will refer to as morphology or think of your anthropometry. So just your body dimensions. The heavier that you are, the more stress something like running is going to put through your joints. And that wear and tear is really important to your progress in the long term. But another aspect of morphometry is somebody's Q angle, quadriceps angle. So if you just look at the position of somebody's hip joints relative to their knees, compare women to men, for instance, women have a greater Q angle. They have those childbearing hips. And that influences things like patella tracking. And that in turn will affect things like risk of knee injuries. And if somebody has a high Q angle, and I think that there's a stronger rationale to exclude something like running because they're more likely to experience knee issues that are going to hamper their gym progress. Obviously relates to this, the utility of cardio depends on someone's musculoskeletal health in general. So if you've got a history of knee issues for whatever reason, then running or even cycling might be contraindicated for you. Obviously, it depends on your goal too. So you mentioned that certainly historically, people have been more likely to include cardio during fat loss phases than during muscle growth phases. And I don't think the researchers looked at this in a particularly systematic way to date. I think if anything, you mentioned energy balance. The data to date suggests that exercise can support weight loss maintenance better than weight loss per se. But a lot of that work has looked at, for example, the post-obese state. It's not looking specifically at physique athletes. But my impression is that this type of exercise is probably best suited to including during those fat loss phases because there might also be some positive effects on things like appetite control. Then obviously it depends on your training status too. So if you just take complete novices and you put them through pretty much any type of exercise stimulus that's sufficiently hard, but also appropriate for their current abilities, they might gain muscle mass and standalone high intensity intermittent training or sprint interval training can lead to hypertrophy. You tend to see that in particular in things like cycling protocols. So if you have people do wing gates, for instance, you might see a small amount of quadriceps hypertrophy in response to that. And so the adaptations to endurance training versus resistance training 
in novices just aren't as different as they are in people who are very trained. And I think that's worth bearing in mind. Obviously, how much time you have available is a really important factor too. And if someone has to spend a lot of time sat down, so let's say that they're working in the city, they have a desk job, have a low step count for that reason, then I think including some brief bouts of dedicated endurance exercise, which might just take the form of doing some intermittent cycling sprints, could be helpful for those health benefits that I mentioned earlier. And provided that the exercise isn't excessive, it's unlikely to impair the work that the person does in the gym. And then obviously, like I mentioned, the, the modality of the exercise matters. So cardio can, can contribute to injuries, but certain types of exercise are more likely to be injurious than other types. And that's going to depend on things like the impact that's involved and so on. But you might have guessed so far that I'm more likely to nudge people to doing low impact endurance work than high impact work. And as an aside, just look at the legs of endurance cyclists versus endurance runners. So compare a, a Tour de France cyclist who might be very small as a person, but might have a, a pretty good set of quads compared to Mo Farah at his peak. And the difference is night and day, of course. And then obviously the distribution of the exercise matters too. I think in general, if you're going to do both strength training and endurance training in the same session, then it's best to do the strength training first. That seems to lead to better strength adaptations and the differences in endurance adaptations are minimal. However, if you're doing them both on the same day, but in separate sessions with several hours between them, then I'd argue that for different reasons, it might actually make sense to do the cardio first if the intensity was low enough. And that's in part because of the fact that you tend to be stronger in the biological afternoon than you are at other times of day, which is something that we've spoken about previously. And then finally, obviously, the intensity matters. So I think if you're going to pick one type of endurance training to interfere with your strength training, then you'd probably pick relatively high intensity but steady rate endurance training. So think, for instance, of running a 10K. That's going to chew up your muscle mass. Whereas if it was lower intensity or if it was very high intensity and intermittent, then that would be less likely to impair your gain. So predictably long answer, but <laughs> I think there are, there are lots of considerations, but the general theme is that it's probably good for your health, but how you go about it is really important and whether it's appropriate for you depends on all sorts of factors. Yeah, really interesting. And uh, I know you mentioned uh, training age kind of <clears throat> contributed to things there as well, because that's something I saw. There was a recent recent meta-analysis. And if you just looked at like the conclusion, it was like there's it almost concluded there was not an interference effect, like given the, the data as a whole. And I think it was Mena Henselman's like dug into it and he was like, Well, when you compare when people are well trained, there's an interference effect. When they're not, like there isn't so much. And so that that makes complete sense. And it just came into my mind with the first study you were referencing, I, I didn't know their training age. And then also thinking, what if rather than cycling before, like the leg training they did afterwards, they just did resistance training. Sure, I, I have a feeling they might have grown even more. I don't know. That's just me kind of playing a, a, a mind. Yeah, sorry. There was, a, there was a comparator group, which was just the resistance training. 
Oh, okay. There were two groups. Yeah, and they they found that preceding the resistance training, if anything, was probably slightly beneficial as compared to just doing the resistance training alone. And I think that they were moderately trained. They weren't out of shape by any means, but they also weren't like you, Steve. But again, I, I, I think my personal conclusion from that study is that it's probably smart if you're taking time out of the gym to carry on doing some low intensity exercise, which is no great surprise to anyone. And you mentioned kind of doing higher rep work. So maybe if you'd periodize that in there or something, then there's a little bit more specific towards muscle growth. It feels like it should kind of support the same adaptations, but have like double the, not double the benefits, but more benefits. Yeah, and as as you know better than I, provided that you do that type of exercise close enough to fatigue, you can induce hypertrophy at relatively low intensities, probably as low as something like 20% of one rep max. I'm not saying that people need to go down that low necessarily, but let's say that your joints are feeling a bit beaten up and most of your sets recently have been in the 60 to 80% of one rep max range during those periods between your hard training mesocycles you might include periods in which you're only training between say 30 percent and 50 percent of one rep max provided that you don't do that type of training for too long because while you can get similar hypertrophy to what you get at higher intensities you won't get the same strength training adaptations you won't get the same adaptations and things like your bone that you otherwise would because load per se does matter for some adaptations really interesting you mentioned the um the health benefits there is to get the health benefits i guess it's a it's a tricky one i, I don't know if um so for the bodybuilder who's maybe in their off season and they're not using it for a way to achieve like an energy deficit or anything like that you think the main benefit to them so long as they're using maybe some higher repetition work or some lower absolute intensities the main benefit to them is their, for their health to introduce some cardio and probably using something that's less impactful. So like cycling, something like that. How, and then obviously you mentioned you could do it kind of uh, lower intensity or you could do it kind of intermittent, but higher intensities away from your resistance training. Is one superior to the other or do you have like a preference there? It's a really difficult question to answer because I think it depends on the structure of the whole training program in general for bodybuilders i'd probably nudge them in the direction of the low intensity steady rate work done using minimally impactful modalities so think of steady rate cycling as opposed to higher intensity stuff and if you do the higher intensity stuff then i would make it maximal in terms of your perceived exertion and so something like a, a wing gate sprint would be a perfect example and for people who aren't familiar with that that's just a series of 30 second long cycling sprints against quite high resistances so as you can imagine <clears throat> you get some impressive adaptations to that type of exercise and you do get different adaptations to those different types of endurance training too obviously you have to bear in mind the specificity of exercise and in general the lower intensity steady rate work tends to lead to more central adaptation so things like changes in the heart muscle the myocardium itself whereas the higher intensity work leads to really impressive peripheral changes so things like your skeletal muscle mitochondrial density 
Okay. Um, and then, yeah, my final question on that would be for, I always think of also when I'm thinking about resistance training, I'm thinking that when you do take it, like you said, you're as a bodybuilder, you're generally using higher rep work. And if you're training in a proximity to failure, especially for legs like that, it works like your cardiovascular system pretty heavily as well. Um, is there a way I, I'm just thinking this is my bias. So someone who is working with relatively high volumes, high intensities about bodybuilding training, basically, uh, and has a relatively high step count outside of the gym. Is that sufficient for like, I guess you can't say if it's sufficient for maximizing health, but does that person who maybe does 8,000 plus steps need to then consider and maybe training four to six times a week with high volumes need to consider as well oh if i want to maximize health outcomes and maybe not take away from my resistance training or bodybuilding outcomes i should be doing cardio as well like so a couple of things to consider i think one is somebody's baseline health so let's say that person is hypertensive they have high blood pressure if that's the case then there's arguably a stronger rationale to include that type of exercise However, for somebody like you, I don't see any need for the cardio whatsoever because your general health is good. Another is just training loads in total because if you're already pushing your limits in terms of those loads, and when I talk about training loads, I'm, I'm talking about both the, the volume of the exercise but also the intensity, the addition of even modest amounts of endurance exercise might push you into an overreaching or even ultimately an overtraining state. And so something has to give. The final comment that I'll add is that there are different roads that lead to Rome. And so let's say that you are a bit hypertensive. That doesn't mean that you have to do the endurance training to pull down your blood pressure back into a healthy range. There are other means by which you can achieve that. And so you might find, for instance, that some simple dietary changes are enough to realize that maybe that includes consuming more nitrate rich vegetables, such as beetroot, for example, or maybe it includes some of the other things that I think we, we might get to later in this conversation. Yeah, for sure. Um, and that actually, I, I don't think I have any other questions surrounding that. I think you covered that really nicely. Um, and I guess it, it's nice because it gives credence as well to um, like some of the benefits of what different rep ranges may even provide you that people might not be thinking about. Because I think that is something that has become, it obviously was a thing where it's like eight to 12 reps was like the hypertrophy like zone. And then it was like, oh, actually we can use like really light loads and we can go heavier as long as we're in a proximity to failure. And then people are like, why would we even use those higher kind of rep ranges if we can get the benefits with the lower ones, but there might be some benefits outside of what a lot of us would consider. So I, I like that you brought that to. Yeah, I think people overlook specificity a lot. They tend to think a little too narrowly about different training related outcomes. It's something that we've spoken about in different contexts too. So we had a back and forth, for instance, about full range of motion training as opposed to just training near the stretch position. And I think there are advantages to doing training at long muscle lengths. You see an increase in the number of fascicles in series, for example. And if you take somebody like a sprinter, who's going to be disposed to hamstring injuries during the late swing phase, as the hip extensors of the hamstrings, for instance, 
have to have to slow down the knee as it moves forward doing some of that type of training is going to be really beneficial because they're specifically getting strong near those end ranges of motion however that doesn't mean that that person should only be doing that type of training because actually for example if you were just doing partials near the strongest range of motion in addition to that type of work then you might get some other beneficial adaptations because if we focus then on bone then if you want to build strong bones then absolute load is really important as is the rate at which those bones are loaded and so if you're trying to build a strong skeleton with really dense bones then doing some partials in very strong ranges of motion for you might be a smart strategy as might including some high impact exercises such as different types of jumps and so if you're just thinking about muscle hypertrophy then you don't have to think in quite such a, a sophisticated way but the point is that if you can understand the different determinants of these adaptations then you're more likely to get the outcomes that you actually want so i think it's uh specificity obviously very important but then i guess you can get there like become an extreme and you forget what kind of might even complement that specific goal that you're trying to achieve through an almost non-specific way if that makes sense but um we can move on to the next question i think which i think uh, the listeners will be interested in as well i it certainly was very interesting to me it's something i've never really th thought about uh, in uh, the past like uh, in that i've thought about this but i've never thought about that there might be benefits to me in doing it so that is giving blood so obviously i think like probably a lot of the listeners some people hopefully are donating blood um i haven't before um as greg knows i'm, I'm not big on needles and also there's always this just apprehension apprehension surrounding kind of the process and things which i'm sure we'll get into i hadn't ever realized was the potential health benefits that could be there in terms of giving blood so uh yeah i'd love to hear a bit more about that greg cool i like speaking about the subject <laughs> because people spunk so much cash on things like supplements and in certain communities things like iv drips and so on yes. and so many of these have minimal evidence supporting their benefits and giving blood is something that you can do that's free that might end up saving the life of another person too so why would you not do it but anyway i think the reason for that obviously in many instances is the people who haven't considered it it's not on their radars like you previously steve but I'll, I'll just briefly explain why i think it's a good idea and when i say briefly let's be honest it's me it might not be that brief. <laughs> but <clears throat> there are lots of reasons so just think about the fact that lots of different bodily processes require adequate iron and you might have experienced one side of that firsthand if you've ever had anemia as a result of insufficient dietary iron. But the problem with iron is that your body's not very good at ridding itself of the iron. And too much iron can contribute to things like excessive oxidative stress. And that's implicated in various different processes related to aging. And when you give blood, you stimulate bone marrow stem cells to form new red blood cells. That requires iron as ferritin from your body's stores to make new hemoglobin. 
and each time you give blood, so in the UK, you give about 470 milliliters of blood, you lose about 200 to 250 milligrams of iron, depending on your heme levels at baseline. So you're reducing your iron stores and thereby oxidative stress. And there's some really interesting evidence suggesting that people who regularly give blood live longer. So for example, there's a huge scale prospective study of over a million blood donors, and they found that each additional donation per year was associated with a seven and a half percent lower risk of dying from all causes combined in the years to come. However, we've got to bear in mind that there is this healthy donor effect phenomenon, meaning that healthy people are more likely to donate. And also if somebody's health is poor, they're more likely to stop donating. So there could be some reverse causality there. But I do think that based on the mechanisms that are at play, this is speculative, but the fact that most women of reproductive age regularly lose blood when they have their periods might be one of the reasons that they have a lower risk of cardiovascular disease in midlife. And ultimately, women go on to live longer than men. I suspect that's one of the factors that's at play. And there have been some interesting shorter term studies showing that giving blood does lead to quite quick health benefits too. So just as an example of this, it can improve cardiovascular health in different ways. One of them is by reducing blood pressure. There's been some work in countries such as Germany showing that giving blood four times over a year in people who have high blood pressure reduce their systolic blood pressure by 12 millimeters of mercury and their diastolic by seven. And people who had the highest blood pressure at baseline experienced the greatest reductions in their blood pressure. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why you see that in these epidemiological studies, regular donors have lower rates of cardiovascular disease than people who don't give blood. And in some instances, the difference between donors and non-donors is really quite big. There was a, a big study of Finnish men showing that donors had an 88% lower risk of having a heart attack compared to non-donors. I think another mechanism that's probably at play there is that giving blood reduces the risk of clots. And I'll come back to that later. There are probably also some positive effects on metabolic health. It's a really interesting study. And this is just a single study. A lot of this research is preliminary, and I just want to spell that out. But this looked at patients who have metabolic syndrome, which is this constellation of risk factors of various different diseases, one of which is high blood pressure, but others include things like poor blood sugar control. And they split them into an iron reduction group. And this group gave blood twice with a small amount removed at baseline and then a, a second donation. And the size of the second donation depended on iron status at baseline. But two weeks after the second donation, they looked at various different outcomes and they found that Again, there was a big drop in blood pressure, but also heart rate fell, blood sugar fell, and blood lipids improved too. Another really interesting one, I think is actually very relevant nowadays, is that giving blood can help eliminate toxins that are otherwise very, very hard to get rid of. And some people refer to these as, as forever chemicals. And there was a study of Australian firefighters and they found that 
regular donations reduce levels of some of these chemicals. So in particular, they're called perfluoroalkyl and polyfluoroalkyl substances. And these are just chemicals that are in various different industrial and consumer products that seem to associate with poor health outcomes over time. And interestingly, they looked at both blood donation and plasma donation, and because you can donate plasma more frequently than blood, the people who donated plasma gave more often, and ultimately they reduced their levels of these chemicals more. And then blood donation is used therapeutically too, in a few instances, not that many, but I think there are probably three main indications for it at the moment. So one of them is hemochromatosis, which is this genetic condition in which iron stores progressively increase over time. Another is called polycythemia vera. And again, here you see more bone marrow, red blood cell production, and that makes the blood quite viscous, therefore more likely to clot. And then there's a, a skin condition too, in which this is indicated. And basically in, in these instances, giving blood reduces risk of those types of clotting events. And then some other indications that might benefit would be sickle cell diseases. And obviously those aren't particularly common in this part of the world, but a lot of people do suffer from them. And then also certain types of fatty liver. So specifically people who have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease that's accompanied by very high levels of ferritin. And this is sometimes referred to as dysmetabolic iron overload syndrome. But there's a bit of research showing that when these people regularly give blood, they reduce their liver enzymes. And some of these studies will actually take liver biopsies. And when they do this, they, they see reduced liver damage after phlebotomy. So when we look at those large studies, we see associations between blood donations and lifespan and risk of cardiovascular disease in particular. And when you look at intervention studies, we see that there are some short-term benefits really really interesting um and uh i guess it's uh obviously like everything there's like a, a dose i mean actually it sounds like there is a dose response but also like probably a u-shaped curve um in terms of the fact that like yeah this seems donating more is beneficial to a point and then if <laughs> i imagine you can donate so much that that can cause problems in, in for itself well it's, it's self-limiting so if, if you just think about standard blood donation context you go to one of these nhs donor sites and at the start they measure that your iron status and if your iron status isn't in what they deem to be a healthy range then you can't donate and so actually I, I think practically speaking the more frequently most people can donate the better because they're gonna keep themselves within that healthy range there's no risk of them falling out of that healthy range but there are some potential downsides and considerations. Uh, in terms of just a, as a, a side thought with uh, the iron, is there a way of like get reducing your iron status without giving blood? I imagine does it, does it does it drop over time very slowly, and you have to be very careful about. Well, yes, potentially. So, so you, you could obviously affect your iron status through changes in your diet. And you see this in people who go on vegan diets, they're at greater risk of 
iron deficiency anemia than people who are omnivorous. There are also some chelation therapies that are sometimes used to help eliminate different types of metals from the body. So that could be cadmium, it could be lead, it could be mercury, it could be iron. But again, those tend to be used therapeutically and they're not without their downside. So I think this is a, a really easy win. And then I guess for those listening, uh, you already mentioned it, obviously females with their menstrual cycle. Do you think females would still see the health benefits of donating that male, I guess not as equivocal as what males would see, but they'd still see some benefit? That's a really good question. And to my knowledge, there hasn't been that much head-to-head comparison. I suspect that women stand to benefit less than men. But if their iron status is within the healthy range, then they would certainly still stand to benefit. It could also be that if somebody is amenorrheic and their iron status is increasing over time, or if somebody is postmenopausal and they're also no longer losing iron, then they're more likely to benefit than if they were eumenorrheic women of reproductive age. And I don't know, I'm kind of going to put you on the spot here, Greg, but you might have thought about it. For someone listening, probably like myself, not given blood before, now after hearing this, considering it, but they're maybe a, I don't know, physique competitor or something like this, is there a way you would prescribe it as like, this would be the way you think would be best without interfering with training or anything that they wouldn't want it? Again, I think that people can probably donate as as frequently as they are able without any negative effects on their physique training. So in the UK, women can donate every 16 weeks and men every 12 weeks. You could donate plasma as often as every two weeks here, which again might be better if you want to rid yourself of those forever chemicals. But I think starting with whole blood at those frequencies is, is probably a good way to go for most people. But it's not for everyone that there is a small risk of something going wrong. I really want to emphasize the word small. So for example, around the, the site, the, the venipuncture site where the needle goes in, there's a tiny risk of a hematoma, like a, a blood clot. Some people might faint and a, again, a, a small minority of people will experience a little bit of nausea more commonly people might feel a little bit hypotensive afterwards, a bit faint, a bit lightheaded, a bit dizzy. A a small number of people report having headaches. Is that a placebo? Is that not a placebo? It's kind of hard to tell. In terms of exercise capacity, which is probably more on people's mind, certainly your your cardiorespiratory fitness and its proxy, so things like VO2 max, will go down a little bit for at least a couple of weeks or so following the donation. Regarding lifting, I've never noticed any effects on my lifting. The thing that I notice is that if I'm going into the gym and doing a leg workout that includes some higher rep work, I'm just more winded after it. My performance doesn't actually drop off. I just get more out of breath and those sessions just suck a little bit more. But as far as I can tell, training volume isn't affected at all because I, I don't think that it's ultimately the cardiorespiratory system that is limiting performance in that type of exercise. So just be prepared to maybe experience that. But otherwise, unless you have a, a phobia of needles, 
I think it's it's a good thing to look into. And again, <laughs> you might save somebody's life. And to my knowledge, the NHS at least is often quite short on blood donations. And so there, there is clearly a demand for people's blood. And I just think this is something that could potentially improve your health, slightly extend your life, benefit other people too. You'll probably experience some positive feelings in response to that knowledge. And I, I have been giving regularly for a while and, and I, I think it probably has benefited me in, in multiple different ways. And I, I noticed some interesting phenomena too around the time that I give blood. So I tend to sleep really well. Again, that might be a placebo, might not, but I suspect that there's probably something going on physiologically there. And it's going to benefit some people more than others. But again, I'm guessing that a lot of people listening to this are males of roughly our age, Steve. And they're probably the people who are going to benefit most. So, yeah, if you haven't considered it before, hopefully you're now convinced that it might be a good thing to do. Do you not see the progress you would like? Are you sick of writing your own programs? Or perhaps you need some accountability in order to stick with a the plan? Then it's time to start working with us. We at Revive Stronger offer a truly personalized coaching service. You'll get more than just an email with some macros or random cookie cutter program. With Revive Stronger, you will be the center of our attention. You will receive your own fully individualized training protocol alongside a customized nutritional strategy. We created the coaching around your needs, wants, personal preferences, and your own unique lifestyle. Every single week, we delve into your program in order to make appropriate adjustments so that we get the most out of your time and the best possible outcome. We help both female and male athletes to seriously change their body composition by adding more muscle mass and decreasing fat tissue. No matter if you're a competitive bodybuilder or just want to look better, if you need help with your progress and taking your physique to the next level, our coaching is for you. It's time to make a change. Sign up today and let's revive stronger. Someone, especially for someone who's not fussed by needles and everything like that it, it sounds like an absolute no-brainer i have to admit i did wince a little bit when you when you were talking me through it i was like oh gosh i would be that guy that would faint afterwards um that's just the way like and i i am a, i'm almost 100 percent convinced it's just placebo it's all in my own head same with the headaches and stuff i i kind of tend to get that sort of response so for me i guess a rest day would just be ideal because i think it is very acute and short term for me which makes again it kind of leads me to think it's placebo it's all in my own head so if if you're like me maybe a rest day would be a good idea and uh let me know if you do do it tag i don't know even tag me tag greg um like everyone like sitting with the, them giving blood that would be fantastic over on instagram and that would definitely give me further encouragement to go do it because like you said for selfish reasons it can be amazing for health it sounds like like a really uh like a big thumbs up that has almost zero downsides to be honest and you're helping potentially save someone else's life which again like there's there's few things that can give you that sort of sense of uh, accomplishment or like help yeah i'm glad we covered that one i think it's very interesting and then the next one i guess talking more about kind of health but in a different sense is um mental health and related to kind of social media and i know i've spoken to you several times about this is it's probably apparent to the listeners like social media is a big part of my job and i think probably for a lot of listeners i mean i imagine all of them are on social media probably a lot of them are potentially uh they, they could be like semi-influencers or they are kind of 
coaches, trainees who are sharing their kind of content over on social media and kind of uh, consuming it. And I know for you, Greg, you're very uh, thoughtful in the way that you use social media, not to say these other individuals aren't, and I'm not, but um, you kind of consider it in a different way that maybe I haven't in that you take breaks from it quite regularly. And I think you have a really interesting take on how people can maybe use social media more to their positive than maybe negative. Yeah, and I'll preface my answer by saying that I think I'm probably objectively rubbish at social media. I have approximately five followers. And so so if you are looking to grow your social media with a view to gaining business for yourself, you should probably like skip ahead 10 minutes or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> but I, I don't want to be simplistic in talking about this. I think a lot of the narrative nowadays is social media is evil and it's destroying the mental health of young people. And I think when you actually look at the research, the, the situation is much more nuanced than that. Social media can definitely have some upsides. It lets you stay in touch with people that you probably otherwise wouldn't. And yes, I realize that you could just stay in touch with them through other means, but certainly I think that's the case for me. If I look back, for instance, at going traveling people that I've met abroad in different countries, I wouldn't have stayed in touch with them through something like WhatsApp, but I have stayed in touch with them through things like Facebook and Instagram. And social media can create a sense of community and all sorts of positive effects that can come with that. It can help people get together in person. I think some of the pushback against it is that it's shifted everyone's lives just online, but you can use it as you wish. You can use it to see people in person more frequently if you're intelligent in how you go about it. And you can curate information that you might not otherwise be exposed to. I think a lot of people find Twitter helpful for that. But obviously, it can have its downsides. It is arguably designed to be addictive. I don't think that's hyperbolic. I think that is the case. The more time that people spend looking at their feeds, the more advertising dollars that these companies make. I think it can potently negatively affect performance in certain cognitive tasks. So it tends to lead to constant task switching. Maybe you check your social media every 15 minutes between bouts of work. And that's bad for all sorts of reasons. It, it shatters your attention. It leaves a residue afterwards and you have to then get back into what you were doing previously and spend time in doing so. And I think these effects are wider ranging than people otherwise might have thought. I think the different social media platforms have different goals and are egregious in different ways too. TikTok is basically Chinese spyware. Again, I don't think that's hyperbolic. I think that is the true, the truth. Twitter can breed a lot of hate, Kanye West, and Musk's overtaking of Twitter has, I think, been a bit of a shit show. And then, I mean, look at Facebook and Cambridge Analytica. You can use these platforms in really, really damaging ways if you're in a position of power. So there are certainly some downsides. And I think people should consider temporarily ditching it, knowing that they can always come back to it. And I find that when I take those breaks, my focus is better at work. I'm more productive. I feel less stressed in general. And 
we don't care about the inconsequential stuff like likes ultimately that's not a great source of meaning in my life and when i am using it regularly it, it feels more substantial than it actually is and i think it helps me focus more on things that are, are genuinely important to me and that i enjoy and find rewarding and then when i do go back to it at some point i feel like i can use it more mindfully because i've actually thought about how i've been using it previously and i'm not used to just constantly going back and forth between it and something else i think the cons to ditching it though are that if you do then algorithms aren't really going to appreciate that and i think that you might find that your engagement with other people temporarily drops i imagine that you're less likely to feature high up their feeds and i think some people will feel quite a large void in their lives when they drop it because for a lot of people the online world can can fill voids within their in-person worlds in the long term though i think that is actually a good thing because it might help people make change in their lives that make them less dependent on social media for reinforcement and for gratification and so i think if, if i was going to summarize all of that in some advice it would be maybe try ditching it for a couple of weeks get apps off your phone i think you can use website blocking software if you like so i use self-control on my mac while it's not going to end you'll probably learn something interesting Obviously, there are lots of books on this subject now. I've read Cal Newport's books. I think the 10 arguments for deleting your social media account right now largely put similar arguments forward. I haven't read that book, though. I'm reading Johan Hari's latest book, Stolen Focus, at the moment, which is a tangent I, I actually don't really like. And <laughs> I don't know how many people realize this, but... He's got an interesting background that features lots of plagiarism. And I, yeah, that's one for another time, but I'd probably recommend Newport's books over that one. And then when you do reintroduce it, just, just be mindful of how you use it. And if necessary, just limit your access to it. I think people could probably realize pretty much all of the benefits that to be had from using it through a total of maybe three hours of use per week you, you could just limit your access to it for that period on a given day each week check in answer messages as necessary post something if needed and then you've got lots more time to focus on other things that are important to you but i say all of that realizing that actually enacting that is really hard because the technology is so compelling so it's it's fine me saying this stuff but i'm by no means an exemplar of how to best use it because I find, especially if I'm say short on sleep and therefore more distractible than I otherwise would be, I'll just bounce back and forth between it. And then I'll just think to myself at the end of the day, well, that was a massive waste of time. Why do you do that? Yeah. When you were speaking through like checking it every 15 minutes, I hate to, I don't know if I can even look at the analytics on my phone, like how frequently I check it, but it's definitely a case of like, I will finish a task or like, I'll be in a group of tasks. It, it could be a client check-in and then maybe I'll be like, oh, my reward will be I'll check if anything's happening on Instagram. It's like, did I need to do that? And when I don't do that, I'm much more efficient at just moving between each client versus taking a moment to check. And it's I, I find it tricky 
because I can definitely see some of the benefits that you talked about when I take time away from it. It might just be a day where I'm barely on my phone and I realize, oh, I've been way more present with what I'm doing today and I feel a sense of a drop in from just general anxiety and that sort of thing. But also I'm aware that uh, a large part of the business that is Revive Stronger has been built through that app and being very present and very focused on growing on there. But um, there might be a time where uh, there might be a strategy where you do that sort of you invest that time you kind of take the downsides for it and then you remove yourself a little bit more and you get a bit more of a healthy relationship with it I'm not sure but um I, I definitely think there's something to be learned from that especially for people who again even for you like it is part of like your business in a sense um, but for people who it's not even like they're just doing it because they enjoy it it's kind of like well they could definitely see some benefits from pulling back potentially, especially if they're on their own. Like, I don't know what my time, screen time is, but it's, you mentioned three hours a week. It's probably more like three hours a day. So I imagine there's people similar, but they're not driving clients through it. They're just on there for the sake of being on there. And so I think they could probably see a lot of value, particularly in pulling back and they have less risks involved. Uh, and I'm, I'm probably overstating the risks, but it, it feels a risk. Yeah, and obviously you can offload that work onto other people that you work with if you work as part of a team. And also one of the tricky things is that you can't consider the counterfactual. So imagine a, a parallel universe in which you, Steve, have developed to revive stronger, but without using social media. There's no way of you knowing whether it would have been more or less successful otherwise. It could have gone either way, plausibly. You could have developed an, an alternative strategy that doesn't use social media, but that still goes viral through some other pathway absolutely um i don't know if you've got anything else on that or we can touch on the, the last subject yeah no let's, let's cool on. so obviously on the kind of theme of i guess in some senses mental health uh we've obviously spoken about this before and uh you kind of had some really interesting takes on psychedelics and how you feel like potentially bodybuilders and physique or kind of athletes could really benefit from like potentially delving down that way um, and it'll be great to hear kind of yeah why you think that might be the case and um, I think a lot of people hear about them and they I don't know at least I do and I'm that person I've not done like I've not even smoked a cigarette so yeah going down this route I'm like oh this seems risky but um, I'd love to hear just yeah yeah don't don't bother with the cigarettes you're not missing out Steve <laughs> I don't want to come across like a lot of people do nowadays as someone who just thinks that psychedelics are god's gift to humanity and they're going to cure all of our problems in society but i i do think that judicious use of them could be really helpful for a lot of people out there including people listening to this and i'll, I'll explain why so i think and this isn't based on data this is just based on experience but i suspect that a lot of physique athletes and athletes in general have certain traits so if you look at the, the big five personality traits there's a, an acronym that's useful it's ocean openness conscientiousness extroversion agreeableness and neuroticism then i think a lot of people listening to this are probably quite high in conscientiousness and neuroticism which are probably two traits that in some ways have helped them those characteristics can really help people with things like their work but also probably help you stay on track as a bodybuilder bodybuilders needing to live quite regimented lifestyles to realize the best progress they can so just bear that in mind but when we think about psychedelics what we're talking about is 
a category of, of so-called mind manifesting, technically that's what psychedelics means, chemicals that produce these non-ordinary states of consciousness. And those states are characterized by feeling less self-centered and also quite profound changes in your perceptions and your moods and your thoughts. So you might, for example, see things differently. You might experience some visual distortions and hear things differently and so on. And there are a few different classic psychedelics that are found in nature. So you've got psilocybin, which is in some mushrooms. You have DMT, dimethyltryptamine, which is in ayahuasca. You've got mescaline, which is in a couple of different cacti. LSD is widely used too. LSD is synthesized, but you can actually find it in a, in a particular type of fungus too. And then if we think about these chemicals as being mind manifesting, then there are arguably lots of things that could be considered psychedelics. So arguably something like cannabis could be too, but in terms of non-classical psychedelics, MDMA is often put in that category. And it doesn't produce the kinds of sensory distortions that other psychedelics do, but it does share some of their characteristics. And these produce really, really remarkable experiences for most people when taken in sufficient doses. So there's a, there's a brilliant scientist named Roland Griffiths, Griffiths, and going by some of his data, specifically in a study that looked at multiple doses of psilocybin, over 80% of people rated their trips as being among the five most spiritually significant experiences of their lives. So up there were things like the birth of a first child or getting married. And 61% of these people rated them as being the most significant. And one of the things that people tend to describe is a, is a kind of mystical experience. And these have been defined differently over time. But they've got a few characteristics. Obviously, there's, there's great joy and a positive mood during them. There's a sense of unity, like everything is connected in one's life. Sacredness, transcending space and time. So people sometimes feel like they lose sense of time passing. And there's a difficulty describing their experiences and a kind of noetic quality too, meaning that people feel like what they experience during these trips is actually more real than their everyday experiences when they're not under the influence. And there's a mysticism scale that's commonly used to try and quantify these experiences. And interestingly, this type of mystical experiences, mystical experience will actually predict therapeutic responses to taking these psychedelics. So the greater the degree to which you experience some of these changes, the more likely you are to experience benefits in the weeks and months to come. And one of the interesting other phenomena is a kind of afterglow that you get in in the weeks and months after taking these psychedelics so you might for instance feel more positive in general feel a bit less anxious feel more present to in terms of effects on their health there is some cross-sectional research in which you just ask people about their experiences and then you ask them about their mental health too and people's total use of psychedelics over time does seem to relate to their mental health. So there's some work showing that use of those classic psychedelics that I mentioned is associated with less psychological distress and also less suicidality than people who have never used them. 
there are also some proven therapeutic users going by carefully controlled studies and, and psilocybin has definitely been best studied by scientists at least in recent years it's a potent antidepressant it potently reduces anxiety and interestingly lsd seems to have very similar effects i actually read a study this morning that was published today showing that multiple 200 microgram lsd doses leads to very similar reductions in anxiety and depression to psilocybin both in people with vanilla anxiety and with people who have anxiety because they have some sort of life-threatening illness these can also be very helpful in treating different types of addiction so there's work looking at psilocybin and quitting smoking showing that it's probably at least as potent as anything else that's been studied to help people wean themselves off smoking there's also work looking at lsd and alcohol use disorder finding similar effects ayahuasca is a potent antidepressant as well and then mdma seems to be really helpful in ptsd and there is a common theme to all these different conditions that i just mentioned which is basically excessive rigidity in how people think about themselves think about the world and how they behave too and so these are probably unified by that and it might be that these different classic psychedelics are improving outcomes in those people through common mechanisms these drugs can also be helpful in palliative care so basically people who have chronic diseases that ultimately are going to end their lives and they're trying to get to grips with the prospect of that a lot of the early work to look at cancer patients and things like psilocybin seem to be incredibly helpful in those people and there are probably some some other uses for them such as in treating cluster headaches which can be really debilitating and i'll add that if people don't have any sort of mental health disorder they don't have headaches they're just like you and i steve they're they're healthy people who are interested in living a good life i think these drugs can still be really helpful one of my favorite studies on this was again done by roland griffiths and they found that taking psilocybin in conjunction with daily spiritual practices like gratitude journaling and meditating substantially improved people's sense of purpose how close they felt to other people their gratitude for life and more and those effects were quite durable and then going back to physique athletes specifically there are several uses of these drugs that are currently being studied that are very relevant so one of them is eating disorders and there are several studies ongoing of using psilocybin to address anorexia or binge eating disorder there's also one of taking mdma for anorexia and binge eating disorder there is another of psilocybin for body dysmorphic disorder and there are several studies of psilocybin for ocd it's obviously quite prevalent nowadays but i again suspect that ocd is more common in the types of people listening to this than in say the general public and I, I say all of this knowing something about my own mental dispositions and feeling like I probably in some ways reflect the people tuning into this podcast and I, I have some hang-ups I'd rather not have and 
I'll, I'll leave that at that but but hopefully that paints a picture as to why i think these can be so helpful people yeah i remember an analogy that you kind of put across to me that kind of just framed it really nicely for me was like as a kind of someone who's interested in growing their physique things you do consistently and like consistency is key in that sense and you do a lot of the same patterns and behaviors on a daily basis and you kind of talked about this skiing down a slope and you just keep skiing down this same slope and it gets deeper and deeper and deeper so you you don't think so much laterally whereas when you take maybe some of these psychedelics it opens up these different paths that maybe you aren't thinking about and uh, that kind of appealed to me because that, that I mean, obviously, that's something I drive home and I try and I, I do do things on a very similar way every single day. And uh, when you said that, like I and sometimes I do reflect and I'm like, man, is there something I'm missing out on? Is there something more I should be doing? And it can be easy to just get caught up in that. And sometimes so it, I think that kind of solidified it for me in terms of how you were describing this, where like these traits can be really beneficial for these goals and outcomes, but sometimes breaking away from those through potentially this kind of therapeutic, ther I guess it would be like a therapeutic use of psychedelics. Yeah, I, I love that analogy. It was actually, to my knowledge, first put out there by a guy who was a scientist at Imperial studying music and, and psychedelic therapies. The idea being that taking the psychedelics is a bit like throwing snow on the ski slope it gives you the chance to take a different path down it there seems to be this window following use in which you have the opportunity to think and behave differently and if you can make some of those changes then you might consolidate them over time so just thinking steve it might make sense just to briefly touch on what we know about how these drugs are working and then also what their safety profile is like just because i guess that some people are, are thinking yeah, but, but surely they're not safe. So that why, was me. <laughs> okay. So there's actually been quite a lot of neuroscientific research on this subject in recent years. A lot of it coming out of labs such as the one of David Nutt at Imperial in London. But interestingly, one of the effects that you see when people take these drugs is total brain blood flow actually temporarily drops a little bit. But when you look at specific brain networks, you get a better idea of how things are changing. And in most people, brain networks are quite modular. And so what I mean by that is that there are distinct brain circuits for different processes. You have a, a frontoparietal attention network that helps you stay on task and focus on one thing at a time, for instance. You have a default mode network that produces mind wandering and self-reflection when you're not focusing on a particular task and what psychedelics seem to do is reduce this kind of modularity so that by disintegrating these brain networks different circuits in the brain are now speaking with other circuits that they weren't previously speaking with and interestingly the degree to which this happens that disintegration seems to relate to some treatment effects such as the antidepressant effects of the drugs in addition to that it seems that psychedelics might temporarily increase neuroplasticity so there's this window that i mentioned in which following use of psychedelics you can make changes to your life that could then become ingrained and if you can make favorable changes then you'll realize some benefits <clears throat> but 
interestingly, when you look at all of these different psychedelics and the actual specific biological processes by which they act, there are some commonalities. So, for instance, they're pretty much all serotonin receptor 2A agonists. MDMA is a little bit different, but won't go into that. They all produce some of these sensory distortions in part for that reason, but they are distinct too. So, for example, if you look at the pharmacokinetics of LSD, they're quite different from psilocybin. The LSD trip at a high dose will last something like 11 hours, whereas psilocybin might last six and a half, something like that. And also LSD is, is quite adrenergic and dopaminergic, so it's slightly more stimulatory than psilocybin is. And again, there are differences for, for other psychedelics too that I won't go into, masculine and so on. In terms of safety, a lot of these plants and fungi have actually been consumed by humans for thousands of years. And there's some quite entertaining research showing the presence of psychedelic alkaloids in human remains from thousands of years ago. So for example, one of the cacti that contains mescaline is peyote. And that's been found in the remains of humans in caves in Texas going back about 5,000 years. So clearly they've actually been part of human culture for quite some time. And in terms of their risks, I actually posted about this on social media, ironically, quite recently, but there was a really nice analysis by David Nutt a few years ago that tried to assess the harms that result from use of various different drugs. And what they did was they, they used these weighted criteria. So it's not like they weighted them all equally to assess the harm of, of 20 different drugs. And these included LSD, psilocybin and MDMA, but also things like alcohol, tobacco, heroin, crack cocaine. And they looked at various different criteria. So both harms to the individual user and harms to other people. And ironically, three of the least harmful drugs were psychedelics, LSD, MDMA, and psilocybin. Psilocybin was actually the least harmful drug going by this analysis, despite the fact that all three of those are class A drugs, which you would think means that they're pretty dangerous. And the most harmful drug was alcohol, which probably won't actually be particularly surprising, but it is almost laughable. And with that said, I, I don't think that these drugs are without potential substantial negative consequences. Certainly there are some small acute changes that some people might see as being detrimental. So for example, if you, if you take LSD or psilocybin or MDMA, you're going to see an increase in your heart rate and, and or your blood pressure. And Maybe that's relevant to some people. So if you had quite high blood pressure at baseline, you then took 200 micrograms of LSD and your blood pressure went very high, that would not be ideal. But the, the real risks that aren't well demonstrated yet, but there are case reports of this type of thing occurring. And again, we don't know if these outcomes would otherwise have occurred without the presence of these drugs because th these are quite rare events, but there are some people who think that if you have a family history or if you have a genetic predisposition to things like schizophrenia, psychosis, and bipolar disorder, there, there's a small but real risk that taking high doses of psychedelics could trigger the onset 
of those diseases. And then I think the the other small and ultimately inconsequential effect that people might experience is a kind of flashback in the weeks following their use. So about 10% of people who have taken LSD or psilocybin will at some point experience or re-experience some element of a trip that they had in the weeks that followed. So maybe they have some sort of very brief visual distortion. But interestingly, when these flashbacks do occur, people tend to rate them as being quite pleasant. They don't perceive them as being negative by any means. If anything, it tends to actually be a reminder of some of the things that they learned about themselves in the world during the trip. And so they actually, if anything, feel that they're positive. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I mean, particularly interesting. It's nothing that I take any time to really think about, like the classes of different drugs, um, like in terms of, like you said there, like alcohol being one that's just so easily to consume, uh, especially here in the UK for people and way over consumed and obviously very harmful. And then these, which seem to have some pretty potent health benefits being kind of class A drugs, which is just like completely crazy. And I was just bringing up, uh, I know... Um, there was this Netflix docu like docu series that just came out. I don't know. I obviously spoke it to you, Greg. I don't know if you've seen it or you have any thoughts on the guy that kind of came with it. It's Michael Pollan. I don't know if he is someone who you think is someone good to like learn about these sort of things from. Yeah, I I really like I really like him. So he he wrote a book, and then off the back of the book, they produced the series. And actually, I yes. I really liked all of his books that I've read. Interestingly. I haven't read that book, How to Change Your Mind, but I've read several of the books he's written about nutrition, such as The Omnivore's Dilemma, and they're well worth reading. He's a, he's a very good writer, and I also think he's a very likable person. I've never met him in person, but yes, I actually think that he's a very reasonable individual. And so if you wanted to find out more about these substances, then bearing in mind they haven't read the book, that's probably a really good place to start. I think there are other individuals who work on this subject that are worth following. So I've mentioned David Nutt a couple of times. I think his work, Robin Carhart-Harris, who was one of his PhD students, who's, who's now frankly quite famous and is working in the States, is worth following too. There are some scientists over in the Netherlands and in Switzerland that are doing some great work. Matthias Leichty is one of them. And then I mentioned Roland Griffiths too, who's at Johns Hopkins, who just seems like the nicest guy. And actually he he was recently diagnosed with terminal cancer, which is which is painfully ironic because he has done some of the work looking at using psychedelics for people who have been diagnosed with terminal cancer, showing that it helps these people come to grips with it. And he's been on a few high profile podcasts recently speaking about his experience having been diagnosed with cancer and also the fact that he, out of curiosity, took one of psychedelics around this time. He took 2CB. There's a whole, well, there are classes of synthesized psychedelics, many of them synthesized by a guy named Alexander Shulgin years ago. And he took one of them, 2CB, and found the experience to be very helpful but it's really interesting listening to him speak about those experiences now because he isn't in the kind of condition you might expect somebody to be in having just found out that he had this life-threatening illness and instead he actually seems to be very much at peace with things and, and to be on 
really good form. So definitely check out his work too. That's yeah, that's great to hear. Um, and just like, uh, I guess it's kind of in a sense proof in the pudding in a sense, which is really interesting. And yeah, I hope further kind of work and research and I don't know, they can start using this in their, their kind of medical and health field a little bit more because it sounds like it's like a really, really fruitful field to go down. Um, yeah, I don't think there's anything else. Uh, we've been talking for over an hour now, so I'm kind of aware of that and your time, but these are super interesting discussions as always, Greg. I want to say a massive thank you for you coming on. And I guess like last time, is there anything you kind of want to let the listeners know about? I know you mentioned last time you're coaching, anything else? No, I don't think so. I know that you often ask by, you often end by asking about social media and like where people can follow you. Yes. Like, I guess today I'm just going to say, yeah. Uh, don't follow me and get off social media. <laughs> <laughs> As always, social media will be linked below. So if you do want to, but Greg's very rarely on there, so you won't be able to catch him. Uh, but guys, thank you so much for being on. And uh, thank you, Greg, again, for taking the time. And we'll catch you next time. Losing weight fast while maintaining muscle mass. Sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? It isn't though, it's reality and we know how to do it and we will help you achieve this. The Minicup Movement is an eight week fat loss program to make you lose a huge chunk of fat while maintaining muscle mass at the same time. We will support you from the beginning to the end so that you see the results you would like to and come out of it much stronger. You will receive a fully automated spreadsheet that is based on your nutritional needs. You can choose between six different male and female training templates. Over 30 videos will guide you through each and every single step of the minicut so that you're getting the most out of your journey and that you always know what to do. But the best thing is that you can start whenever you want. The minicut movement is open 24-7. So if you want to learn more or you're ready to sign up, hit the link in the description below. So let's revive stronger together.